Not Podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, writer and organizer, Kelly Hayes. On this show, we talk a lot about building the relationships and analysis we need to create movements that can win. Today, we are talking about immigration and deportations, a subject that many liberals and progressives were passionate about during the Trump administration, and a topic that a lot of people are noticeably avoiding these days. We are going to discuss what happened in Del Rio, Texas, where the U.S. government recently cleared an encampment of 15,000 largely Haitian refugees and deported thousands of people within days after images of Border Patrol violence went viral. We're also going to talk about Governor Greg Abbott's private unconstitutional war on migrants, Operation Lone Star. That's way too much for me to break down on my own, so we'll also be hearing from Brianne Palmer from UndocuBlack Network and attorney Kevin Herrera, who works with Just Futures Law, an immigration law project rooted in movement lawyering. We'll also be talking about why a lot of people are less engaged with immigration justice under Biden, beyond the obvious red team, blue team divides, and why that needs to change. Under Trump, we saw unmitigated outrage from Democrats and liberals about family separations, children in concentration camps, and Trump's vile attitude toward migrants. The idea that refugees should be welcomed was a mainstream liberal idea, echoed by Vice President Kamala Harris during her presidential campaign, when she tweeted in 2017, Say it loud, say it clear, everyone is welcome here. But following the ouster of Donald Trump, things changed. Many self-described migrant justice advocates have tolerated or ignored the role of Democrats in the progression of border violence in the United States. This is a cyclical problem, and the cycle has to be broken, because people's lives and dignity are at stake, and I believe our humanity and our collective survival are at stake as well. Back in 1996, when I was still in high school, Bill Clinton signed the rarely discussed Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, only two years after signing his now infamous crime bill. The Illegal Immigration Reform and Responsibility Act closed avenues to documentation and radically expanded the criteria for deportation. The mass deportation machine that has since been exploited by both Republican and Democratic administrations was, in many ways, enabled by this legislation. When it comes to deportations, repelling migrants and refugees, and other massive investments in securitization, Republicans and Democrats may use different rhetoric, but their underlying objectives are similar, because securitization is the bipartisan response to virtually every disruption of the status quo. When it comes to intracommunal violence, the state's solution is never to address the roots of harm and violence, but to strengthen its ability to surveil, contain, and enact violence upon the populace. In the case of immigration, solutions that involve debt forgiveness, ending austerity or harmful trade agreements, or addressing climate change, or actually welcoming refugees in the manner that candidate Harris described, are never on the table. When either party has power, it addresses migration by ramping up deportations and creating deadly or hopeless conditions that are meant to deter migrants from attempting to come to the United States. Harsha Walia describes these dynamics in her book Border and Rule global migration, capitalism, and the rise of racist nationalism. And I want to share a passage that I think illustrates how all of this has progressed. Walia wrote, Faced with multiple crises beginning in the 1960s, including a deep recession, 
military defeat in Vietnam, and an enormous wave of social protests and strikes, the U.S. ruling class set out to restore U.S. capitalism and empire. They did so by adopting and exporting neoliberalism, rolling back social movement gains by normalizing carceral governance, and reimposing imperial supremacy, beginning with genocidal wars in Central America and culminating in the global war on terror. Consequently, a growing number of people were displaced and then contained by the U.S. through its expanding border imperialist regimes across maritime space with Haiti and at the border with Mexico. U.S. immigration policies were not only parallel to, but a fulcrum between domestic and global warfare. Repressive border policies served as a threat, braiding together social warfare, mass destabilization, and displacement, capitalist extraction, and militarized carceral control, both at home and abroad. Securitization is a bipartisan imperative. And it appears our country's only real response to climate change and the reality that hundreds of millions of people will be displaced in the coming years. The bipartisan plan in the United States is to slam the door and let those people die, rather than addressing the root causes of migration or offering any form of safe harbor. And we have to reconcile that in order to have any meaningful conversations about immigration policy. So I wanted to start there. As many of you know, on September 20th, videos emerged of Border Patrol agents on horseback, whipping immigrants with split reins while chasing and nearly trampling asylum seekers. On September 22nd, the Undocu Black Network, Haitian Bridge Alliance, United We Dream, the Movement for Black Lives, and 236 co-signing organizations sent an open letter to President Biden, Vice President Harris, Majority Leader Schumer, and Speaker Pelosi demanding an end to the use of Title 42, a public health measure that was first weaponized by Donald Trump to facilitate mass deportations. The letter also called for drastic budget cuts to the Department of Homeland Security, among other demands. Highlighting the role of colonial powers like the United States in creating Haiti's current predicament, the coalition wrote, Immigration is a black issue. For decades, the world has witnessed unstable environmental and political conditions in Haiti act as consistent roadblocks to peace and liberation for the island nation and its people. We understand these conditions are the direct result of centuries of financial and political punishment from global colonial powers as revenge for Haiti's unapologetic seizing of its own freedom as the world's first Black-led republic. While the Biden administration has been apologetic about the spectacle of brutality at the border, the administration has also been using Title 42 to deport thousands of Haitian deportees without allowing them to apply for asylum. According to the Undocu Black Network, more than 6,000 Haitian migrants have been expelled back to Haiti under Title 42 without access to asylum protection as required under U.S. and international law since September 19th. Many of the deportees left Haiti in 2010 after an earthquake that killed 200,000 people. They have now been returned to a country they haven't seen in years, in the aftermath of another catastrophic earthquake and a presidential assassination. A country with a government on the brink of collapse, where street violence is rampant. I recently spoke with Brianne Palmer from the Undocu Black Network, and she had a few thoughts she wanted to share with you all about Title 42. Uh, 
so my name is Brianne Palmer. I'm the Interim Policy and Advocacy Director at the Undocu Black Network. Um, the Undocu Black Network is a multi-generational network of currently and formerly undocumented Black people. We um, do policy work and advocacy work with the administration, with um, members of Congress. We also have a very robust narrative and media team that seeks to complicate narratives about immigration and particularly about Black immigrants. And we also strive to provide community care and wellness resources for our members so they're not just living, but thriving and living very full, wonderful lives outside of um, the struggle for just immigration. So that's a bit about me and about my organization. The past few weeks, the, the photographs and videos that have been going viral of horseback CBP officers brutalizing Haitian immigrants and other Black immigrants who are being misclassified as Haitians, much of that is the fault of the Title 42 policy that is currently in place um, in the U.S. And so Title 42 is a, is a, before the pandemic, was a very kind of obscure authorization in which the CDC and or the Department of Health and Human Services could issue an order that authorizes the Department of Homeland Security to close ports of entry and deny access to the U.S. Um, for people seeking asylum, people coming on foot. It has very much been, Title 42 has been promulgated and sort of publicized as a public health uh, measure that we we simply must close our borders to immigrants because they, they pose a, a significant threat to the public health during the pandemic. And over the past more than a year was that the Title 42 order went into effect last March, March 2020. And the more than a year that this, this order has been in effect, we there's been no proof that keeping the quote unquote borders closed has improved the United States response to COVID-19. The response has been abysmal internally. And so not only are we not only are we allowing the virus to run free within the country, but then we are using that same excuse to deny asylum seekers their domestic and international right to apply for asylum. The U.S. is a party to a number of treaties, a number of international obligations to not return people um, to the countries they fled from where they fear persecution, harm, even death. And so we are really, we are abandoning our obligations to refugees and asylum seekers under a false pretense and it is, it's outrageous. And, and that Title 42 function, that is why we are seeing such violence and such harm at the border, even more than normally happens, right? There's always violence at any border, but in particular, we are, we've closed our doors and we've abandoned people to dangerous conditions in border towns and in border communities where they're not always welcomed um, by local folks, especially black immigrants who are very visible and very vulnerable to anti-Black discrimination, violence, harm. It's, it's just a dire situation that is a situation of our own making. Many people have noted that the images of Haitian and Black refugees being whipped by Border Patrol agents are reminiscent of slavery. It's important for people who may find that exceptional to understand that those images were reminiscent of slavery because border patrol and slavery are part of the same lineage of violence. 
The Texas Rangers, who helped establish Border Patrol in 1924, were created to aid in the murderous displacement of indigenous people and Mexican landowners, and to enforce the property rights of slave owners by hunting down enslaved people who had escaped. Since then, Border Patrol has operated with near impunity. Many early members of Border Patrol were transplants from the Texas Rangers, some transferred in from Border Town Police Departments. Many were members of the KKK. President Biden has denounced the images of Border Patrol agents on horseback nearly running down refugees, saying, I promise you, those people will pay. Biden told reporters, they will be investigated, there will be consequences. But according to immigration rights activist and former senior Border Patrol agent Jen Budd, what was captured in those photos was status quo conduct for Border Patrol agents. As Budd stated on her website, Yes, the manner in which those horse patrol agents were patrolling is normal behavior. Yes, agents are trained this way. Bud also wrote that Border Patrol often use terms designated for animals, for migrants, because they do not see migrants as humans. Agents are trained in the academy and in the field that most asylum seekers and refugees are liars, criminals, and are trying to invade our country. They believe that most are subhuman and make statements like you heard the horse patrol agent make in the video, that they are coming from shit countries. In Border and Rule, Harsha Walia wrote about the violent terminology deployed by Border Patrol, such as calling border crossers tonks, a word that refers to the sound an agent's flashlight supposedly makes when it strikes a migrant on the head. We do not have time today to do justice to all of the ways anti-blackness and the overall control of black people's movements under capitalism through bordering and criminalization have informed the evolution of border violence. And by that, I mean the inherently violent work of border enforcement. But I do want to uplift what Breonn Palmer had to say about the plight of black migrants under this system. At every stage of the immigration process, in every type of interaction with the Department of Homeland Security, ICE, CBP, Black immigrants are subjected to some of the worst types of of mistreatment. So we we saw one horrific, grotesque example of that with the use of the, the mounted CBP officers and their reins, whips, whatever we want to call them, the devices used to brutalize um, Haitian migrants. That that's just one example of the kind of mistreatment and denial of just humanity that Black immigrants face. Um, at Undocu Black, we, we're also involved in advocacy for, you know, pregnant, um, pregnant people, pregnant Black African people and families have been detained throughout the pandemic at, at certain points in time. They've been denied proper nutrition for themselves and for their children if if they have infants, they've been denied access to quality medical care for pregnant people. You know, these are just some of the kind of atrocities that we've we've seen. I think many people may be aware of the forced sterilization and experimentation on Cameroonian women um, at the Irwin detention facility. So we, every kind of violent mistreatment, every kind of violation of human rights and and human dignity, those things are visited upon Black immigrants, whether they are in detention, whether they are approaching the border to apply for asylum, whether they are being forced onto deportation flights. We see kind of a disparate 
extreme mistreatment of, of Black immigrants that reflects, you know, the mistreatment of Black Americans within the country. These, these things are interconnected because the root issue is anti-Blackness. And the United States was built on anti-Indigenous violence and it's built on anti-Black violence. And so these are all sort of the the fruits of, of that central tree of white supremacy and anti-Blackness. And so if you have a, a law enforcement agency that is based on you know, apprehending and processing immigrants for deportation, it's not surprising that they are not very good at asking the right questions of asylum seekers to make sure that they are provided with their proper opportunity to express their desire to apply for asylum. It's not surprising that you know, policies that um, should prevent the detention of pregnant people are suddenly ignored when the detention population becomes more Caribbean, more African, just more Black in general. So we, the, the things we are observing in the immigration system that are anti-Black, they are, they're not new. And they're, the photos that we saw of the Haitian migrants at the border, that is, that is one example of many of the horrible things that Black immigrants go to. I am going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news organization and the vast majority of our funding comes from readers and listeners like you. We've experienced a bit of a slowdown in donations recently, which may have something to do with Facebook ramping down engagement with political content. But we are still here, delivering award-winning independent journalism. We are a union shop, and we have not laid anyone off during the pandemic, and our family and sick leave policies are the best in the industry. So if you believe in what we do, please consider stopping by truthout.org to make a donation today. Next up, I really want to talk about Operation Lone Star in Texas. Last week, I saw immigration reporter Tina Vasquez tweet, I remain deeply confused why Operation Lone Star isn't bigger news. It completely dismisses due process, and it intersects with Title 42 and the recent treatment of Haitian migrants in Texas. I read that tweet and realized that, one, if Tina Vasquez says we need to be talking about this, then we should be, and two, that I didn't know nearly enough about Operation Lone Star. So I hit up Kevin Herrera, who is an attorney with Just Futures Law, a transformative law project that follows the leadership of grassroots organizers and provides legal support for immigration rights organizations. And I asked him if he could break the situation down for us. Here's what he had to say. So Operation Lone Star appears to be Governor Abbott, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, his effort to engage in state-level Trumpism, whereby uh, the real problems of the state of Texas are pushed aside, and instead the state demonizes a population of people who are marginalized, specifically the migrants who have been crossing the United States-Texas border for centuries. And so Operation Lone Star is more or less a, a manufactured crisis that the state of Texas has designed in order to score political points and create political theater, but also enact um, immeasurable cruelty on migrants who 
choose to cross the United States Mexico border for whatever purposes uh, they they choose to and in ways that again are like time honored and have been occurring um, for for again centuries. So the legal foundations of Operation Lone Star are essentially a lot of uh, political grandstanding whereby the governor of Texas claimed that there is a, a large number of migrants who are crossing into the United States. And this is a crisis for the state of Texas where ranchers and people who own private property believe that their uh, property is being crossed. And um, in an effort to sort of escalate the, the sort of damages that are uh, alleged about the ways that migrants cross into the United States, uh, people are saying that they have property damage. And there's, of course, this um, demonization and xenophobic rhetoric of uh, migrants are drug traffickers and they're human smugglers and people are afraid to leave their houses because of, you know, five or six single men who may be seeking work in Texas crossing their property on foot. So essentially, the governor shouted a lot about this, did a lot of media about it, and then moved on to creating uh, legal foundations for doing something about it, in spite of the fact that under the federal constitution, only the United States federal government can enforce immigration law. Governor Abbott first issued a declaration uh, suspending a lot of basic criminal laws in Texas as they pertain to uh, migrants. Um, you might have seen an earlier proclamation about uh, migrant smuggling, uh, whereby a person who's caught giving a ride, for example, to an undocumented person can face criminal penalty. And that's being challenged in court. But Operation Lone Star itself really hit a uh, ramp up when the governor declared a state of emergency. And under this state of emergency ordered a few things. And I think the notable ones are a redirection of state resources to the border. So you're seeing Texas highway uh, patrol officers being uh, deployed to the border, as well as Texas National Guard people being deployed to the border. Other states that wanted to get in on the political theater and have conservative leadership, um, I believe, uh, North and South Dakota were involved. Iowa, Arizona also sent their National Guards people to the border. And so there's this resource allocation. In addition to that, uh, the governor, uh, with this state of emergency, declared emergency funding be available for um, enforcement of the program. And then the ways that it's really impacting the criminal legal system is this, this emergency declaration was stated grounds for essentially enhancing a very basic misdemeanor, which is criminal trespass, to a more heavily punishable offense and an offense uh, that is no longer subject to the same sort of protections that you might anticipate a basic, uh, a basic misdemeanor to be you know, subject to. So the governor set aside, for example, Dolph Briscoe unit, which is a state Texas prison, usually used to house individuals who are alleged to have committed like higher level crimes, that's now a unit that is just designated for immigrants, all of whom, to my knowledge, have only been uh, alleged to have committed misdemeanor trespass, which initially is a 15-day uh, jail sentence or a fine. 
even elevated under the emergency declaration, it's a 30-day jail sentence or a fine, but people have been transported essentially from border counties where they're picked up by highway patrol or, you know, essentially National Guard forces to Dolph Briscoe unit, which is like three, I want to say, it's more than 100 miles away uh, from the place of arrest and then just held there awaiting some sort of criminal process based on allegations that they, you know, were caught on private land. So our organization was contacted by grassroots leadership, which is doing a tremendous job via their organizers of trying to figure out exactly, you know, what legal processes have been suspended. We've seen more than a thousand people be arrested for criminal trespass and again, just disappeared into a state prison facility that is designated specifically for migrants. And Criminal defense attorneys have told us that their clients are being told, you can anticipate being here for a year without really being told why. And we're also being told that individuals are signing uh, untranslated documents, essentially uh, waiving their right to an attorney because they're being instructed to do so and they don't speak English. So grassroots leadership essentially asked for Just Futures Law's assistance in trying to figure out a way if there was if, if there was a possibility to you know challenge these detentions uh, where folks are just languishing in jail for months um, without having a criminal trial or without um, without an attorney so we were connected with some potential clients we formed a little legal team that involved uh, a person uh, uh, Catherine Dyer, who's at University of Texas Law, working on her own time, as well as Angelica Cogliano and Addie Miro, both of whom are private attorneys in Austin. And we just essentially started digging into what was possible to uh, help individuals at least get a day in court, given that they'd just been stuck in jail for, for several months. So two clients that were connected to us via their families, and their families had done a tremendous job advocating for them and just making sure that organizers are responsive to their needs and aware of their situations. But Ivan Ruano Nava and uh, David Vega Munoz, both of whom were arrested by Texas DPS officers in July, essentially we asked them what had gone on. And a lot of the situation reflected what I just described earlier, which is, uh, you know, they were told there were no attorneys available, told to sign forms. Uh, waiving their rights to attorneys, never told what they were charged with outside of a mass magistration where they essentially just walked in, had a judge uh, speak really quickly at them about what was what they were facing. As to our understanding, the officer that arrested them was their interpreter. And so they told us that they couldn't really understand what he had to say about what was happening to them. And then they were sent to Dolph Briscoe, again, 100 miles away from Kinney County, where they were arrested and never told anything else about their criminal, um, their criminal charges. So our, our role and our job, the best that we could come up with, was filing an application for habeas corpus in a district court. That hearing, which was really difficult to get, finally occurred on Tuesday, uh, September 28th. And we alleged uh, with regard to why they were being held 
several claims, one of one, which was selective prosecution. Um, the state of Texas has said that it is only prosecuting men and appears to only be prosecuting brown skinned people who are from Central and uh, Central America and Mexico. And so our argument is that misdemeanor uh, trespass is only being alleged against people with those characteristics. Also preemption, um, just the notion that Texas can't lawfully enforce immigration law, and this is a pretextual effort to do so. And then a few other um, basic constitutional protections that have just been completely suspended um, by Operation Lone Star. One of which is you have a right to be charged with a certain offense within uh, a certain amount of time that you're spending in jail. So under the, the misdemeanor trespass statute, you have to be charged within 15 days of arrest. They had been held for 45 days without being charged with any crime formally. And, um, oh, we also, I should say, we also challenged the probable cause for their arrest uh, because it would appear that they were arrested on public land. And so, I mean, my the sense that I get is that if a Texas Highway Patrol person encounters a person who appears to be an immigrant uh, based on like physiological characteristics, that person gets arrested for misdemeanor trespass. And so the state ought to prove that there's a reason uh, for their arrest. But during that hearing, essentially, we followed on a, an, another hearing that happened that morning from Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid, which is representing you know, lots of people based on appointments, where they secured personal bonds for roughly 150 to 200 people, which just means a, a payable amount uh, so that they could be free prior to their you know, day in court on criminal charges rather than having to wait however many months it's going to take the Texas courts to catch up with the mass arrests and the mass magistrations that have happened. But in our case, uh, we weren't satisfied with a personal bond and we didn't think there were underlying criminal grounds for these individuals to be, uh, to be uh, held in the first place. But yeah, so we just would not accept uh, a personal bond and an order that these individuals come back to to face their day in court on misdemeanor charges because we didn't think the misdemeanor charges had any merit anyway. So we went on and talked to the court about the constitutional issues and um, my colleague uh, Angelica Cagliano, uh, once we got to the probable cause portion, pressed the state on whether they had any evidence uh, for why these individuals were arrested and whether they could meet their burden of showing there was probable cause for the arrest. At that point, opposing counsel for the state essentially admitted that they couldn't prove it up. And because opposing counsel, the counsel for the state of Texas, couldn't prove probable cause, she offered to drop the charges, which, which we accepted. So coming out of that day, our clients didn't have any more criminal charges against them, but that's really only the beginning of the, the story for their detention. So Texas is playing by its own rules on immigration and deputizing police from as far away as Iowa to participate in Abbott's state-level war on migrants. The implications here are just horrifying particularly when put in the larger political context of what marginalized people in Texas are experiencing. People being encouraged to surveil the reproductive choices of their neighbors so they can sue them if they get an abortion. The passage of a sweeping voter suppression bill, a law that includes measures that could fuel vigilantism. 
What's happening in Texas could be the shape of things to come, and fierce battles are clearly called for. Democrats in Congress have so far proven incapable of taking action on voting rights, and the right-wing Supreme Court has allowed the state's reproductive surveillance law to stand. But immigration enforcement falls under the purview of the federal government, and the Biden administration has an obligation to put a stop to Abbott's state-level war on migrants. So why isn't Biden putting a stop to this? Kevin had a few thoughts on that as well. I mean, I think that the Biden administration wants to have it a couple of ways. They want to say uh, we're humane and kind and understand the, the value of the lives of migrants. And for this reason, we won't use terms like illegal aliens in our in our press releases and our legal filings. But on the other hand, they think that it's a like politically expedient tool to say, we're hard on border crossers. We don't want more people coming. I mean, you've heard Kamala Harris uh, say this isn't the right time. And Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of DHS say, if you come here, you will be sent back. And so, you know, I think the actions are speaking louder than words, but the the ways that they approached the Haitian migrants in Del Rio suggests, you know, an intolerable level of cruelty on the on the part of the administration. And uh, this ties back to our situation with Operation Lone Star insofar as the Biden administration won't take a stand to oppose Texas's total suspension of the constitutional rights of migrants. And jailing without probable cause, literally thousands of people thus far. And so, you know, our issue following what I felt to be a complete victory in the criminal legal system on behalf of two men, where I thought, oh, great, Ivan and David are going to be able to walk out and go where they need to go, wherever that is, just was the tip of the iceberg, because Texas continues to hold these men based on the belief that the federal government is going to pick them up and deport them pursuant to some policy, whether that's Title 42 or just the typical routine deportation orders of a recent arrival in the United States. And so, you know, it seems as though the federal government is working hand in hand with the state of Texas where laws are being suspended whole cloth. And that's really a problem, right? I think that you know, there has to be a willingness and the bravery on the part of the federal government to say no, like Texas's suspension of constitutional rights and willingness to just say it's going to do what the federal government won't with regard to immigration law. Like you can't acquiesce to that and still say that you have any sort of humanitarian uh, prerogative when it comes to immigration. So I think just the ways that the federal government has been really willing to cooperate with Texas on both the issue of like Haitian folks in Del Rio and on the Operation Lone Star question speaks to a larger pattern of just willingness on the part of the government to look the other way when it comes to real cruelty, whether that's enacted by federal agents or by, by state personnel. 
So now that we've learned a few things about what's going on right now in the realm of immigration, I want to circle back to the problem of people being inattentive to this issue. There's a stereotype about liberals having gone back to brunch once Biden was elected. And I think there are plenty of cases where that stereotype holds up. Some people were being theatrical about immigration under Trump because migrant children and their families made useful political props. And now that they don't feel personally threatened by the president, a lot of people are willing to tune out whatever happens to asylum seekers. But I don't think everyone who has gotten quiet about immigration under Biden was being disingenuous under Trump. I think some people meant what they were saying at the time because they felt a sense of proximity to the crisis that they no longer feel, even though their liberation is, in fact, tied up in the liberation of those migrants. I think we saw something similar in the early days of the pandemic, when an unprecedented number of white people joined black people and people of color in the streets to demand justice for George Floyd. It was a moment of uncertainty and crisis when a lot of white people were contemplating their own disposability under capitalism for the first time. So when the system violently disposed of George Floyd, something resonated. Similarly, when it comes to immigration, white liberals witnessed child separations and children being put in concentration camps, and they saw fewer degrees of separation between themselves and that violence. Because while they were not going to experience the same violence, they knew they were not safe from the Trump administration, and that the normal they had known was not safe from Trump. We all lose our sense of proximity to other people all the time. The society was engineered to cause that disorientation. Individualism sets us up to fail each other. And right now, a lot of people are failing people they might have marched or wept for a couple of years ago. We need to reckon with that. I've been thinking a lot about how people used to point to the horrific things Trump was doing and say, this is not normal. The point wasn't that his actions were unjust, because injustice is normal. It was that there was something about his injustice that was menacing to the status quo. A status quo that allows some people to feel socially insulated from the violence of this world. The political weather was harsh under Trump, and previously sheltered people could feel it because their insulation was being ripped away, and it hurt. Then Trump was gone, and suddenly people were willing to set the bar at normalcy, which has worked out pretty terribly for the people who normally got the shaft. And it will work out for fewer and fewer of us over time. We know that we are capable of more than this. In terms of care and solidarity, we saw a flash of that potential in the early days of the pandemic, when mutual aid efforts popped up across the country. Disasters can act as social defibrillations that re-enliven our human connectivity which can lead to remarkable acts of solidarity. When we feel that connection and that urge to act on one another's behalf, we are capable of tremendous mobilization. But when a crisis exists within the realm of normalcy on any given day under capitalism, and our disabled neighbors have trouble picking up their prescriptions or a struggling family can't afford groceries, those crises are individualized. And that charge of connectivity just doesn't light up the grid. That same principle applies to groups of people, like migrants and other criminalized people who are routinely harmed or ground down by the system, even under a Democrat. It is the tyranny of normalcy that allows our government to perpetrate atrocities while avoiding the potential wrath of our solidarity. Because when an atrocity is normalized, we learn to live with it, and we can be relied upon to do so. 
people in the United States have been conditioned to exonerate their country of its violence whenever possible. And when they can't, they have been conditioned to exonerate themselves by way of merely voicing disapproval. This is some hardcore conditioning, and it's conditioning that must be undone. Our obligation to each other is no different under Biden than it was under Trump. Our human ties to the people being abused along the border are as real today as they were when asylum seekers were being terrorized, abused, and denied entry under the Trump administration. And while some people may now see the fates of migrants as being less entwined with their own, those people couldn't be more wrong. We are living through an era of intensifying catastrophe. The continued normalization of disposing of people who have nowhere to go and who have no place in the existing order of economic relations threatens us all. Just as we should all expect that we might become climate refugees at some point, we should all recognize that our disposal will probably be on the table at some point. Maybe because we have nowhere to go. Maybe because there are no jobs. Maybe because we can't afford health care. What culture will we have built in opposition to our own disposal when those moments come? When we decide to let normalcy envelop atrocity, our own lives are at stake too. Our lives shouldn't have to be at stake for us to give a damn, but they are, because normalcy's teeth keep getting sharper and capitalism and criminalization keep getting hungrier. Moments of collapse will unfold unpredictably in the coming decades. We're not talking about the whole world falling down at once, but for some people it already has, and it will continue to do so. We need to decide what values we are building upon and what politics we are proliferating as people are shuffled through the aftermaths to come. And we have to decide now, because the dynamics that will determine how we all experience this era are being established now. So if you're thinking, okay, I won't look away, what can I do? Undocky Black Network does have some asks and demands that you can engage with and share, and I hope that you do. The Undocky Black Network has um, a petition that, that we've signed with United We Dream, with the Haitian Bridge Alliance, and with the Movement for Black Lives that invites individual people, everyday folks, to to join our join in our outrage and join in our efforts to hold the Biden administration accountable. We're calling for number one, an end to the Title 42 policy. You know, it's it is long past any form of efficacy or you know candor in, in what it's doing. It's an excuse to deny asylum seekers and it's an excuse to keep America closed to the people that it owes, it owes humane treatment to. And so we ask you to join our call to end Title 42. We are demanding the protection and return of the Haitian and other Black migrants who were expelled um, from Del Rio before any kind of investigation could begin on what happened and in what happened and what we saw in those photos and videos. So we're demanding a right of return for those people. We're demanding humanitarian parole for Haitians and other Black immigrants and other migrants who were at Del Rio at the time of that violence. They deserve to to enter the country and live in peace at least, at least, at least pending an investigation um, by DHS or by other agencies into what's been happening. And in general, we are, we've called for this for quite a number of years, but we are renewing our call for divestment from DHS, divestment from ICE, divestment from CBP. We cannot keep pouring billions of dollars into agencies that are committed to harming immigrants and harming our Black immigrant community members. And we're looking for a true 
abolitionist view of a new investment in humane, holistic immigration processes, immigration care, providing resources for free from the federal government and not relying on nonprofits and organizations like ours to fill in the gap that should be filled in by the incredibly well-resourced, incredibly creative federal government. And so folks can join our petition. Um, you can follow the Undocky Black Network at Undocky Black on all the platforms to keep up with our work. And we also encourage people to call your members of Congress and express your desire to see Congress pressure the Biden administration to reverse Title 42. If that looks like Congress denying funding to ICE until um, that's done, then perhaps that's what that looks like. And so we encourage you to get creative with your ideas and, and the ways that we can really put pressure on the Biden administration to stop failing to fulfill their promises and stop betraying the communities and the family members of the folks who delivered him the White House. And so many new Americans voted for the first time last November, and we are seeing we're seeing people who come from the places they came from being brutalized, and that is unacceptable. some of that work or to support Just Futures Law or their grassroots partners, we will have links in the show notes at the end of this episode's transcript on our website. I hope everyone will check out those options and that we all engage in whatever ways our capacity might allow. I know these are difficult times and that we are all overwhelmed, but we are going to continue to build power together. By living outside our own secluded stories, we can reject individualism, learn the stories that our oppressors don't want repeated, and shout them out to others. There are many levels of participation in all of our struggles, but our work begins by refusing to disengage, by learning, and by acting when and where we can. Together, we can build a life-giving culture in opposition to colonialism borders, and other forms of violence. But to do that, we have to refuse to leave each other behind. If you're listening to this show or reading the transcript, I just want to let you know how much I appreciate your concern and your resolve in tackling the issues we discuss. I also wanted to give our regular listeners a heads up that as of next week, episodes of Movement Memos will be released on Thursdays instead of Wednesdays. So be on the lookout for that. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets. for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.